Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review the Brazilian Grand Prix and give our verdict on the Verstappen Ocon Clash. Brazilian Grand Prix had a bit of everything, an old-school backmarker clash that cost Max Verstappen victory, some pushing and shoving between drivers after the race, a Constructors' Championship win for Mercedes, and of course, a 10th victory of the season for Lewis Hamilton. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and hopefully my two guests don't disagree too strongly between themselves and start shoving each other around my 12th floor hotel room here in Sao Paulo. Stuart Codling, are you feeling in fighting form? Yes, indeed. I've been box-setting Marvel's Iron Fist on the plane on the way here, and I've focused my chi. Did you just use box-set as a verb? Okay, I did, yes. But it's not as egregious a noun as verb as, well, did someone on our internal communications channel use the word standalone as a verb the other day? I'm going to standalone it. That person is going to get a chi-filled punch in the face when I get back to the office. I think box setting is uh, is just as bad, but I only pick you up on it because of a, as a sub-editor of some note, it's just the kind of thing you would uh, give short shrift to. Well, also joining me is Scott Mitchell. Now, I've been coming to Sao Paulo for many years, and I still haven't quite worked out where everything is in this vast sea of humanity. How have you found it? 
I have absolutely no idea where anything is, what anything is. I don't know if we're in a particularly good part of Sao Paulo or a bad part of Sao Paulo. Um, I'm reliably informed it's quite nice. Yeah, we're in quite a nice part. Yeah, I had a well, it's, it's fine wandering around. I don't wander around fearing for my life, which is what I was sort of led to believe would be the case coming to Sao Paulo. So I guess we are in a pretty high-end part of town. Um, it's been fine. It's not really had the sort of buzz and sort of festival atmosphere that I was led to believe the Brazilian Grand Prix is. So not enough samba for your liking? Uh, no, not enough Chris Samba, really. Um, I think the main thing is that it's such a long season and it's just it's just it's just another race at this point and it doesn't really feel it has it was just a bit flat i mean it was it was cool today on the grid today and with the crowd and with everyone here it, there there was a bit more to it but the last few days it it's genuinely lacked a buzz i think it's one of those races where we've had championship deciders here before i remember being on the grid in 2008 2009 and it was uh, yeah a really great atmosphere but you should you should enjoy the fact we've got one of our nicer hotels here you know we're podcasting in in my bedroom but as we were in Singapore, Codders, we're not sort of perched on my bed uh, to, no. to do it. You two are sat on a sofa. I'm sat at a desk with it with a chair. It's all very, very civilised. It's got a mini bar as well. This hotel has even got a gym, which has got a lot of stuff and a beautiful view as well. Plus a room in which you can not just unfurl uh, a yoga mat if you've brought one, but you know you could probably dance a two-step through here. And well, score a seven. <laughs> well, that's something for, for us maybe to do later in the in the podcast. We should probably talk about Formula One uh, first. So, Stuart, the the obvious talking point in this race is Esteban Ocon's pretty ill fated attempt to unlap himself on race leader Max Verstappen, which resulted in contact, a spun Red Bull. Verstappen dropped a second behind Lewis Hamilton. He had damage to the right side of his floor that team principal Christian Horner suggested cost a, a second a lap. Whether it was that much, not sure, but it was certainly enough to, to dull Verstappen's challenge. The stewards gave Ock on a 10-second stop-go penalty, so it's very clear who they thought was at fault. Do you agree? I find it a very problematic incident because um, my opinion swung both ways. Because on the one hand, it was, a, it was a needless accident. I think we can agree that that it shouldn't have happened. Ocon put himself in harm's way, but then again, so did Verstappen. And I think Verstappen should probably have been told, maybe he was, by his race engineer, that the Force India was coming up, that he was on fresh tyres, and just to let him go the way, you know, if you're sitting in traffic in London, you'd let a motorbike uh, filter past you without opening your door and trying to murder them. And what what Max did was basically, in a very entitled way, take up the the racing line into the second part of the Senna S, as if Ocon were just going to defer to him because he's better. Uh, and that really was quite stupid. So it was a bit dim and aggressive of Ocon to be trying to race at that point, because I don't think there was really that much of him to gain by by charging off into the distance. At the same time, Max really should just have let him go and not bothered with him because they were in two different races. I think when it comes to Verstappen, I'm, I'm probably slightly... Uh, so, I mean, it's one of those things, it's very easy to look back and say, well, should have let him go, let him go, etc. But I just did. Well, you, you very much did. But I think he might well have let him go if it was a move happening on the straight or if he got clearly ahead kind of in the first part of the corner. But I think given the nature of the move, Hogan was perfectly entitled to unlap himself. You are allowed to do that. But the fact that he... he kind of left the car in there just was just an unnecessary risk you need to make a clean clear pass he was close enough that he'd have got the drs on the next straight anyway because the drs applies regardless of what lap you're on 
and he'd have breezed past anyway. The staff might have thought, well, that's that's all right. So I, I'm inclined to think there's nothing wrong with what with what Ocon initially did, but if you're going to unlap yourself, it's got to be clean. It's got to be decisive. One of the things I would counter there is that Max doesn't. Ma- Max had every opportunity to back out into turn one. And and while I believe that Ocon is almost entirely to blame for the accident because he's put his car somewhere where it shouldn't be when he's trying to unlap himself, and by definition, if he doesn't put his car somewhere it shouldn't be, then there won't be an accident. Um, I agree that Verstappen chops across him into turn two, so plays a part there. But also feel that Max could have taken him. So and I and I feel like a that a wiser, more mature driver in that situation would have removed themselves from it earlier because Ocon gets a stunning run on him down the start finish straight and he's he's a pretty long way like past on the right hand side into turn one and Max Max can just sort of Max doesn't need to roll off the brakes he doesn't need to contest the inside of that corner as much as he does that would just allow Ocon to go past minimum time lost for Max and if Ocon's time at that pace really is limited then Max is going to get back past him pretty quickly with the help of blue flags and then pull clear. So I think you can argue it, argue it both ways. I, I'm I'm sort of partially playing devil's advocate here because, as I say, I, I believe Ocon is primarily at fault, but I also can see why people would argue that, that, that Verstappen's put himself in, in, in a position he doesn't need to be as well. Yeah, uh, the it was ridiculous to get himself as involved in that first corner as he did because, as you say, he, he could have just braked a little bit earlier, maybe even roll off the brakes. He, he was contesting that corner and making it difficult. And he could have just not made it difficult, lost a minimal amount of time, one or two tenths. It would not have affected the leadership battle at all because Hamilton, as we know, was having to manage issues even then. My, my, big, my big problem with Ocon, not Verstappen, is that that move in turn one and two, and Ocon said this after the stewards decision that... Um, that he's that he did that move a few times in the race, and that's fine, because even though it's tight, you can pull that move off. But you pull that move off, and it's a bit ballsy, and it's a bit on the edge. And the reason we think that his moves earlier in the race and other moves we've seen at that corner, round the outside of one into, two, and then you got the inside line into two. The reason we think that move is so good is because it's a it's an on the line move, and you can't like you should not be racing that hard against a car that's lapped you. If you're just trying to unlap yourself, this is what Charlie Whiting was saying afterwards, that you that there's no issue, there's no rule against unlapping. It's encouraged. You, you, there's there's no problem with that. But you can't do it in a way that's affecting the race uh, of of the person who has lapped you. You've got, as you said, Ed, he could have had DRS down to turn four. It, it would have, Ocon, it, it would have been done then. Didn't need to do that. And I just think... I think both had a part to play. Ocon was certainly more to blame, in my opinion, but it was just it was just a bit stupid from 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 both drivers. I'm just a bit disappointed because a driver of Ocon's caliber, you don't expect to 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 pull something like that. It looked it looked borderline, not deliberate, but it did look a bit like he didn't care whether he had a crash at turn two with Verstappen, and then at the same time, as Lewis and a few other people said. Verstappen's a bit silly for just assuming that a car that he's gone side by side with through turn one won't be there into turn two. It was quite, it was almost insouciant, wasn't it? And it reminded me in that respect 
of um, Eddie Irvine at Suzuka when he unlapped himself from Senna and kind of nearly got tangled with him. They didn't actually hit at the time, but Senna was furious and felt that he'd been impeded. Um, and there was 50 fisticuffs afterwards. But it is that sort of thing where so- someone's doing something that they don't really need to do. It also it also wrecked, uh, to a very lesser extent, Ocon's race. I think the trouble is with Verstappen is it's very easy to say, well, he should have let him go but there's a lot of backmark related events in any race and you do have to make sure you're not losing time and he could have ended up with a with a car ahead of him with Hamilton who wasn't that far behind Verstappen didn't know the full depth of of the engine problems that Hamilton was going on they knew Hamilton wasn't a threat on pace and that they could control the race and they could stroke it home but I think it's one of those things where you'd probably find, you might find if in an alternative universe and Ocon goes past, he gets stuck behind him and then Hamilton gets past. We say, well, he shouldn't have let Ocon go past. I think it's quite easy to be a little bit after the fact. And I think probably, you know, Hamilton said that Verstappen shouldn't have got himself in that situation. I suspect Hamilton wouldn't have had that happen to him because he's very, very good in that. But ultimately, yeah, the, the way the way the rules of engagement, as it were, work in Formula 1 backmarkers are not meant to be quite so uh, aggressive, shall we say. Well, one of the things there is that this actually is a bit of a, it sets a bit of a precedent because it's all well and good them coming out after the race and saying, oh, well, no, when you're unlapping yourself, you're, it's fine for you to unlap yourself, but you're not allowed to fight. But I've, I've never heard that explicitly stated. I don't know where that is in the rules where that's explicitly stated that that's your determining factor. And I think here... This I don't remember. I mean, I know it's just good track etiquette, I, isn't it? I know, they don't, we don't have to have rules. No, no, no. On all that. My, my point is that I know that we have another pretty famous example of a of a Verstappen involved in a backmarker race leader shunt at Interlagos, don't we? Um, from a fair few years ago now. But when w- w- was that the last time? Was the that- last the last one I can remember, of course, uh, Jos Verstappen. Basically, went at the back of Juan Pablo Montoya. I think it was on his third Grand Prix. Yeah, Montoya wasn't he? He'd passed Michael Schumacher with that great attacking move in the in the center S. Yeah, so it's very very rare. So, so this is my point. So we don't know what that what those rules are, unwritten or or or, or otherwise that track etiquette or whatever you want to call it, because we don't ha- we haven't had that example. We've had lesser examples. We've had cars find themselves on either fresh rubber or a car that's lapped another car suddenly hitting problems and starting to fall back but this was obviously such an extreme example and i i can i can see why some people would look at this and say oh well we're not why are we making it easy for so so many so many drivers in so many occasions why why are we we so anti letting drivers just race each other and oh you know you can't let drivers can't have a go anymore because there's always got to be a penalty but this was a major incident and whether the guy's in first place or sixth place or whatever, the, the the guy who has been lapped and is unlapping themselves has to understand and accept that they are driving in a different race. It's a race within a race. The conditions are different. You don't race a car that's lapped you as hard as you do a car that you're fighting for position. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and also uh, there's a little bit to which the teams do have a part to play. Obviously, Force India said, I might be self if you want. Exactly the same as what happened at Suzuka in 93. Uh, Gary Anderson said he told Irvin to unlap himself if he wanted to on Senna. And also, Red Bull probably should have been a little bit more wary of, of that threat because I think Ocon the previous two laps have been about a quarter of a second a lap quicker. So it was was kind of possible. So, I mean, it's one of those things you look at and you say, yeah, it definitely shouldn't have happened. The primary cause of it was, was Ocon. 
ultimately. And you, I think you just, don't think he was a quarter of a second lap quicker, Ed. You know, because you've got the uh, the lap times in your big sheet was, in front was, of you. It was point two four zero on average of the previous two laps. Yes, uh, that, so that yeah, I do know what it was. Uh, but the other thing is, is just looking at it purely from a piece of Ocon track craft is. If he'd got through there, he'd have then triggered the DRS detection line before Verstappen, leading to Verstappen probably just going past him on the next straight anyway. So it was just strange from Ocon. There was a, there was a better way for him to manage that situation from his own own perspective. I think I think we're all agreed that the penalty was uh, was it was entirely correct. Even if um, yeah, you you could argue Verstappen could have uh, not got himself involved in that. Although I think I think it's a, I think it's a little bit too easy to. Uh, to say that, so let's let's have a look at what happened after Scott. I mean, we're used to things getting a bit tasty in the way and in boxing, but uh, Formula One got in in the act with Verstappen starting the shoving match with Ocon. His opinion is divided on this as about whether it's acceptable or the sign, the, or a sign of the end of civilization in Formula One that such terrible violence was happening. So, where do you stand? It was rubbish. It was really, really sad to see because, first of all, it's it's a really it's a really juvenile thing to, to to be doing pushing each other um i know i know that they had uh i, I know that they weren't exactly about to engage in you know as codders re- referenced earlier a bit of fisticuffs like we've seen in the past and i'm glad that they didn't because it's a terrible thing to be to be to be showing because it's easy for that stuff as has been proven to be caught on camera and you need to be setting a better precedent when you're uh, an f1 driver because you are a role model um but it was just you know neither of them cover themselves in glory it's um it's embarrassing to a degree because, as I say, both of them are better than that, and they've needlessly let their emotions get the better of them. I understand that adrenaline is an extremely powerful thing, so remove yourself from the situation. That accident happened. It didn't happen two laps before the end of the race. Having a long way before the end of the Grand Prix, really. So there was a bit of time to sort of mull over what happened, and if you're going to need to have it out. Don't do it straight after the race. It's a stupid thing to do. And I think Verstappen's lucky to only get away with a couple of days of community service. And Ocon's lucky to get away with nothing because Ocon retaliated. And it doesn't matter if you're the aggressor or not. If you retaliate and you get involved, then you're part of it. And it's and it's a transgression on Ocon's part. I think they're both quite lucky that that wasn't taken a bit more seriously. Um, I, I don't think it was quite the uh, massive row that... It, uh, that it may maybe some people wanted to make it out, and some of the comments afterwards were just a bit silly, really. You know, violent, unprofessional. I'm not sure I can say what Max called Ocon on this podcast, can I, Ed? So probably throw to Codders right about now. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it wasn't exactly the sort of fight you see in the the taxi queue outside Hull City Hall at uh, two a.m. on a on a Saturday. You're a veteran of such pugilism. <laughs> My dad worked for the local taxi company, so we had a, a, a buy to a, a fast route round the corner. But um, the it, it's just not a good look when racing drivers fight because they, they either get to shoving or especially if they've got their helmets on, you have that sort of slightly flaccid flapping and 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 uh, each other's heads and and chin bars sort of like the when cats P- throwing P- punches Salazar at one another. was the uh, classic example I, exactly you know he he quickly realized he was on a hiding to nothing there with the chin bar slapping so he he did a sort of karate style kick but even even that wasn't anything of the sort you'd see in iron fist scott but um the <laughs> um all, all you do is embarrass yourself because it was so schoolyard. And just to push someone 
what does it even achieve? It's a massive waste of energy. And you wouldn't see Lewis Hamilton doing that. You you see him occasionally having a fit of peak. Sometimes you hear him having a chew on the radio, but he gathers himself in so quickly because he knows that it is a complete waste of energy to just get into any sort of physical argy-bargy. So I want to be there when Max Verstappen is, uh, you know, removing graffiti from a wall or weeding Mrs. Miggins' uh, flower pots or something and doing penance. I, I, I like the idea that, that drivers show emotion and, and Christian Horner was right post-race when he said that drivers aren't robots and nor should they be. Um, but... What I, what I dislike is when people who want to complain about drivers being boring in the modern age jump on something like this and use this as um, an example of, oh, this is brilliant, you know, look at them, now we really know what they're feeling. We heard Max over the radio, we knew exactly what he was feeling, we heard Esteban over the radio, we knew exactly what he was feeling. I don't think you necessarily need to do that because then what that does is is ultimately whether whether consciously or not, it does instill into the minds of young carters that, that this is what Formula One drivers do when they're annoyed. And and I've seen firsthand enough stupid retaliations in karting from competitors, from dads, whatever. The dads are worse. Well, aren't they? yeah, but it's just it's still not nice to see in like in, in any in any situation. So you want to see emotion, you and and that sort of thing, but then something like this happens and everyone just seems to, well, not everyone, but people that have that opinion then seem to glorify this and that act as if it is something, you know, it's brief, I guess it's briefly funny, maybe a bit amusing because you sort of think, oh God, look at that. But then actually it's just kind of like, all right, you've sort of lightly pushed you off or they were going to start slapping each other at one point or, or something stupid. So it's just a bit, it's just a, it's just a bit sad. Well, I think the FIA stewards are right to uh, to give Verstappen two days of public service, I think they called it right. Yeah, and purely service. from a health and safety point of view, the initial shove knocked Ocon kind of off the waybridge. He stepped backwards and down, and you know, he could have done himself an injury. The corner of that waybridge really should have some tiger tape on it or a safety rail. I should probably point out that that comment about health and safety was meant entirely facetiously. <laughs> Most of what you say is meant entirely facetiously. But but I think the, the important thing is I I get a bit irritated with any of the extremes on this whole argument, actually, because you get people who will say, oh, you want characters like James Hunt who do those great things and all that. Like these punch <laughs> Yes, exactly. And then if something like this happens, people are horrified. I mean, it... It was it was a it was messy. It was stupid. It was unnecessary. It wasn't especially professional. It shouldn't have happened. And they're quite right to to clamp down on it. But it's not kind of the the end of days, is it? It's not the it's not an extreme act of violence, as some people want to, want to kind of say. So kind of keep keep it in proportion. I think. Well, he didn't the, pull uh, a message. gun on him, did he? No, and 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 <laughs> you should point out that's rather selfishly that he's very good business for us. You know, the, the autosport.com website. It was. Uh, was in extremely rude health uh, after the race with, um, you know, straight reports of what had happened and then reactions from the various key people involved and their team bosses. And what really got me over everything was le- less so about the, um, the, the the shoving contest um, as amusing or sad or embarrassing or wherever you stand on it may be, was the conspiracy theories that a couple of people were trying to peddle afterwards about how it was clearly orchestrated by Mercedes or orchestrated by 
Ocon with a view of endearing himself to Mercedes as an official junior driver and wannabe senior team driver, wiping out the person in the lead of the race so that Hamilton could come through and win. And I think, what the hell? I cannot believe people genu- are genuinely trying to trying to push this as an actual thing. You yeah, can hear the crinkle of the tinfoil hats from here, can't you? It's just not what's happened, basically. And I think, I mean, Helmut Marco made some comments that were kind of interpreted as a conspiracy accusation, which he didn't go as far as all he said about he's a Mercedes driver. And, you know, Christian Allcree said, no, there's nothing to that. And in fact, I was um, uh, waiting at Red Bull after race, and Toto Wolff actually came over to chat to uh, Christian Horner and said, uh, I said, oh, look, sorry, because obviously they felt a bit poly- apologetic, the fact that the circumstances, not for, not for the... Mercedes tyre and a thing, but just sort of sporting commiseration, as it were. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's a r- ridiculous thing. And we have to remember Ocon and Verstappen; they've got history. They they've been colliding on track since 2010 when they first crossed swords in karting. So you know, there's, there's a little bit of history there that I think stoked that fire a, a little bit as well. Well, don't forget that I don't I don't believe that the Ocon ever really understood or let go of the fact that after being European Formula 3 champion, defeating Verstappen, Ocon wasn't able to, you know, progress the normal way and Verstappen went straight to F1. And I think that sort of, given their, as you say, their previous history, I think that grated with Ocon a little bit. So yeah, they've never, they've not been the best of friends for for a, for a fair old while now. Um, I saw that, I, I saw a few people saying, I didn't see it myself, but um, apparently they had a little little handshake in the paddock I saw them coming out the the stewards uh, office they were uh, they were not speaking uh, Ocon was flanked by a couple of Force India people and Verstappen was actually on his own both of them were very much head down looking quite mardy so they weren't about to uh, kiss and make up any anytime soon but at least they'd stopped shoving each other by that point yeah basically they were both walking back from the stewards and I think kind of as Verstappen went to peel off to go into the Red Bull garage or Force India one was just in the, sort of the next one down, so Ocon was coming on, so it was just sort of a quick. It was it was more an end stop than a reconciliation, but it just sort of showed right they've they've calmed down and kind of accepted the uh, the fallout. Because I, what I don't want to, I I don't want what we're saying to be misconstrued as uh, as that. Oh, we want drivers to be robots and never show emotion because these drivers have shown emotion and look at them, we're criticizing them. But I think Christian Horner made a made made a, a point which is that in other sports there's physical confrontation all the time and that it, it's up to the sort of you know in that situation you've got you've probably got a referee that can intervene or it's the team captain or something like that they just sort Rather of just Valtteri Bottas standing there watching or Brendan Hartley looking slightly confused um there are these flashpoints in other sports where there are physical confrontations and I don't know. So I, I guess some people are more entertained by this than others, and it does come down to opinion. And I don't think there's necessarily. A, I, I wouldn't say that someone who massively enjoys this is wrong. I wouldn't say that they're an idiot, and I don't understand why they do it because I completely understand. It's quite a primal thing that makes you enjoy it, isn't it? Because it's kind of oh, here we go, starting to. It's getting this is getting a bit tasty. And when I see that, when I go to watch one, of, like if I go to watch my football team play, and I see a few people squaring up, you sort of think, okay, that's quite. That's quite amusing or entertaining or quite fun and then there's but there's a line isn't there there's always a line and I think with Ocon and Verstappen like shoving each other like that I I think that was sort of I think if you're going to go up to one another remonstrate if there's a little bit of a 
oh, what are you doing? And then a slap on the shoulder or something like that. Then that's just like, oh, there you go. You can see they're, they're, they're a bit annoyed. When it starts to get to that where you're sort of like physically sort of going at them and it's about as far as you can go without actually swinging, swinging for them. I just think at that point it's just, all right, lads, pack it in now. It's, it's done. Grow up and get over it. Surely footballers, you know, one administers a slap on the shoulder to the other and the other then throws themselves at the ground and starts writhing in pain. Well, that sounds like the makings of a, a, a serious um, ACL injury, a, a little slap to the shoulder or face. Well, it's appropriate enough for discussing that. Of course, Neymar was the star of that in the in the World Cup, the Brazilian star for his uh, theatrical rolling. So, uh, yeah, the right country for that. Well, we'll come back to the race in a minute. But Scott, you know Daniel App, don't you, from your days in Formula E? I do. He's a very nice guy. Quick driver as well. Quicker and, and a bit more successful than I think people have given him credit for. Yeah, he's just had a, had a decent season. The reason I bring him up in this slightly unexpected manner is I have just downloaded an app, which uh, Daniel Apt... An Apt app. Daniel Apt is not only kind of involved in it, but also he's he's in it. Yeah, it's called Hyperdrome. The idea is it's racing reinvented. It's kind of a... You know how Formula E talked about Mario Kart style racing quite fun actually it's something i haven't really seen before so you kind of have your race in sort of single seater type things it's kind of overhead graphics not sort of old super sprint style it's sort of 3d uh, your car's going around you have to sort of manage the race and manage your power-ups and all sorts of things you can do so power boost it's like a formula e race in in, in that regard and you start off with uh only recently downloaded it becoming your tutorials with uh with daniel apt so well he's, he's your driving instructor so you know you've got you've got to beat him in the, in the in the early challenges to show that you've mastered the art of these Perhaps you can choose your favourite selection. And there's some of them are quite sort of standard race ones, power boost and that kind of, those those kind of things. But then there's all sorts of other bits, missiles, that kind of thing. And that's initially when you're doing the tutorial, and then you can do one-on-one games against anyone around the world. Sort of, it's an online head-to-head racing system. So it's quite nice. It's you know races up to a couple of minutes, so it's, it's quite good fun for passing the time. I'm going to try and master it on the flight back. I've got 11 hours. 11 hours. I've got 11 hours in a, in in a middle, middle seat. Row. Yeah, middle of a row. <laughs> That's going to be fun. Well, this this is going to be ideal for you because you can't sleep in a in a, in a a middle seat. But yeah, it's, it's, good, it's good fun. So you can choose your combination of your of your power-ups. And it's a strat- it's strategy as well as racing. Yeah, have a look at that. It's called uh, it's called Hyperdrome. So uh, head to the App Store, search for that. You can, uh, you can download that uh, for free. And uh, yeah, try and uh, try and be a bit better at it than, uh, than I am. Well, you've got 11 hours to get better at it. Yes, yes. Well, that's. Uh, I think I might need a few flights of eleven hours, but I'm, I'm going to master it. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to become the master of strategy. Well, let's get back to the Brazilian Grand Prix. We haven't really talked about the winner yet, Lewis Hamilton, of course, who came through the uh, the Verstappen Ocon collision to uh, to win. Now, he was powerless to keep Verstappen behind. We expected Mercedes to be under serious threat from the Ferrari drivers who started on the softs, with the others on the super softs. But Stuart, the race didn't quite turn out as we planned it was it a surprise to you that it was Verstappen rather than the Ferraris taking the fight to the Mercedes drivers yeah I mean I think it surprised everyone really if you recall um yesterday uh Toto Wolff was prognosticating that Ferrari's tyre gamble would really put them on the front foot and they knew that they Mercedes had a little bit of trouble uh in terms of the keeping the rears alive on the super softs and Red Bull really hadn't shown a fantastic degree of pace during practice in fact it even looked like they'd slipped back a little bit from the the leading uh the the friday long run looked pretty good but often they that sort of that that always tends to look good for them should we say yeah i i I think just just reading the tea leaves daniel ricardo did say a few interesting things on uh friday 
after practice that they'd struggled a little bit with with blistering early on and they'd, they'd tried a few things and that they were heading in the right direction and they thought that their trajectory would carry carry them on a bit but they hadn't shown anything like the sort of ability to keep their tires alive through practice that, that would indicate the form i suppose what you could say is that they it, it is quite a downforce laden car and if you've got downforce, then you are less likely to slide. So you're not putting as much energy through the tyres. So maybe that's probably what they did. But also... It's a very well-balanced car, the Red Bull. This year. It always yeah. has been this year. Yeah. And also the, the, the other thing is, of course, the Renault engine, you would expect them to maybe wind a little bit of downforce off to gain on the straights because the, the, the main sort of straight here isn't just... Uh, fairly long it's also on a gradient as well so it's doubly difficult for the Renault powered cars so that was a little bit surprising so maybe they just decided to trade off in a different way and set up uh, and the race came to them because it wasn't quite as hot today as was expected well Scott obviously Hamilton led early on it was it was a Mercedes 1-2 for a bit with Hamilton and Bottas got ahead of uh, Vettel uh, through the first corner so it's looking quite positive from from that perspective but it it became fairly fairly clear that there were some problems. I mean, the first stint was was reasonable, and then once Hamilton had his pit stop switched to the mediums, things were starting to get a bit more dicey, weren't they? Well, Mercedes was expecting uh, Hamilton to retire before mid distance because uh, they were battling with a with, with an engine problem, um, and the the temperatures were were starting to go through the roof, and took a bit of dialing the engine back actually to uh, bring those under control. Well, they were telling they were telling Hamilton as Verstappen was closing on him that he wouldn't have the full range of modes because having to protect it, so we can't we can't lose his power unit. So yeah, that they were they were already while under attack struggling. Yeah, exactly. So uh, and on top of that, they were they were battling with. Um, I don't I don't think any sort of more significantly with with tires than anyone else, but I think Hamilton Hamilton was really good because. First of all, yesterday, and I say yesterday, obviously this podcast will come out on Monday, so Saturday in qualifying, he claimed pole for the first time in after winning a title in the five races I believe he's contested in 2015 and 2017. He yeah, never claimed pole races, or won. Yeah. So there was always, there's this like, it's not a myth obviously because factually it happened, but it's this sort of, bizarre trait that once he's won the title we sort of he slipped in 15 and 17 and he he claimed pole on Saturday and then ended up winning on Sunday and he was actually sort of he did really well to sort of get back ahead of Bottas who was looking pretty good in um through through practice and was quickest in um in Q2 I think um so he got back ahead of him there and then on, on in the race despite managing this problem Hamilton just he didn't just have Bottas at arm's length he had he was the one leading the charge. Bottas was just falling further and further back, but Hamilton was getting the job done. I think th- this is something that I don't think we saw from Hamilton in the Rosberg years. This, these, these were the sort of weekends where he goes missing. Even last year, to a to a degree, this is the sort of weekend where you think, okay, maybe this will slip away from him. I think he did a really good job, and obviously he got a bit lucky because of the Verstappen thing. But the fact that he was the one there leading the charge, not the Ferraris, who had in theory, the optimal tyre strategy for the race. It, it was Hamilton that was, that was there ready to pick up the pieces. Well, they said on the radio to him at the end of the race, basically, yeah, he did a really good job of, of managing that because not you know, better than, than the other car because uh, Bottas was uh, was struggling a bit with the with the tyres and obviously had to make the, the second stop in the end. But yeah, the Ferrari challenge, I mean, it, it was stymied a little bit by Sebastian Vettel having this sensor problem that 
affected the the modes on the car and it certainly seemed to make the car iffy under braking at the lock up he had quite a few lock ups and the wide moment in turn four that let Raikkonen get past him so I think we can kind of put uh, Vettel's disappointing race sort of fading back to six partly down to that and maybe that that dimmed the challenge Raikkonen had a good run to third but I, I sort of look at that and think well if Hamilton or Verstappen had been in the Raikkonen situation would they have just been able to get involved you're, you're, you're in that, going to that bring battle. fire and brimstone down on us now ed aren't you uh, very very likely yes yeah. i think it's, it's certainly fair to say that the soft tire gambit in qualifying didn't actually deliver the results anticipated by anyone i, th- I think the only person who um, did spectacularly well out of starting on the soft tires was kevin magnuson the 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 thing with um with, with the different tyres, I think Vettel touched on this, was just they, they just expected the Supersofts to fall away more in the first stint. And he said there was a point early on where it looked like the guys on Supersofts were struggling a little bit. And Vettel, in his own brilliant Germanic, but with that, you know, British sort of element to him, said, um, <laughs> you actually used the phrase, I thought we were quids in uh, at this point. And then... They um, they got through that phase and then the guys on the super sauce were quick, were quicker again and then just during this they just didn't have the pace um, and then obviously Vettel and uh, and Kimi just sort of you 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 don't have the pace to match them and the super softs, especially Verstappen who went super long well Verstappen and Ricardo went went longer than the Ferraris exactly so all of a sudden it's a double whammy it's oh hang on we have the slower tire and we're not going as far in the first stint. So all of a sudden, that game plan just unravels, doesn't it? Yeah, we often mock the Pirelli strategy briefing that comes out on the Saturday when they describe the optimal race strategies as as a work of fiction or at the very, very, very least wishful thinking. But it was actually broadly accurate this time around. We did see um, Hamilton stopping surprisingly early and the Red Bull stop surprisingly late. But pretty much most of the other people who started on Supersofts did pit in the window that Pirelli anticipated. It was fairly straightforward, apart from a bit of management, for the most part. It was reasonably straightforward, the, the tyres, in terms of it wasn't causing dramatic swings throughout the field. The the best thing for me that, that that shows, the fact that this was simple, this wasn't one of those races where it's dominated by the story of, oh, look, six cars at the front, all circulated in two seconds apart, driving as slowly as they can to try and get to the end on a on exactly the same one-stop strategy. It was, there, there was variety. It wasn't a variety in a particularly extreme way or for ridiculous reasons. And without that big Verstappen Ocon flashpoint in the race and after the race, we'd be sat here saying, well, that's a really good Grand Prix because you had... Uh, Verstappen passing the two Ferraris early on that was really good Bottas obviously got Vettel at the start we had uh, Vettel making another mistake running wide Verstappen catching catching forcing Hamilton to stop early then passing him on track it's brilliant Verstappen went from fifth to first on track Every one of them an on track. Yeah, move. I say on merit, that, and that's amazing. Ricardo coming through. Not only did Ricardo come through from a lower grid position because of his penalty, he didn't just come through and make up the numbers in sixth. He then actually got massively involved in the in his own little battle. There was something going on the whole way through. If Ricardo didn't have his penalty, would he have won that race? Assuming Verstappen had had the same collision, yeah, because exactly. he qualified. I think it was only like two thousand slower, so he'd have been he'd have been with Verstappen, and he'd have certainly been on the podium. And that maybe that could have been a. A win for him. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it, was, it was mega, and there was a brilliant bit as well in the first stint where 
you had, I think, the top five were pretty close together. Lewis had made like a small break for it. It was about a second and a half clear. And just watching it and just thinking, I thought the, like, I don't, and I don't want to pretend like, oh, actually, F1 2018 is perfect and modern F1's fixed. We don't need these changes next year. But I did have a thought at the time, which was these cars aren't meant to follow very easily. And we're meant to be in this time where oh, we need to change everything and make it easier to follow and overtake and all this. But actually, to be fair, if this is a problem, then to have, be able to have races like this, that's, it's a really good thing, especially uh, into Lagos, where that middle part of the lap, to me, is is prime for sort of just gradually losing touch a little bit because you just sort of have that little bit of uncertainty at low speed and you saw how how much the Red Bull's aerodynamic and mechanical prowess was giving them such an advantage in the middle sector. And then my expectation was, oh, this is just going to, they're gradually going to just incrementally increase each of the gaps. It's going to be, oh, they're going to be a few tenths apart and then almost a second apart and then a second and a half. And then they're all going to be about roughly two seconds apart and nothing's going to happen. And it's completely the opposite. I thought it was a really good race. One thing you didn't think was really good though, Scott, was Sebastian Vettel and the Weybridge. Now, what did you make of what happened there? You, I think you've got some strong feelings on this. Oh, I, I'm qualifying just, on Saturday. Perhaps just quickly explain to anyone who who, who wasn't following so closely what happened. Uh, yeah, so uh, Vettel came in uh, during Q2 um, and got called in for a random bit of weighage, which I believe is is a, is a word. Um, and the problem was that the the scales were blocked off by a cone, and Vettel was in a rush because changeable conditions rain was threatening but not on not on the way in the end but rain was coming and ferrari had inexplicably sent its drivers out on super softs and then decided on their outlap to bring them back in i suspect they i suspect they probably did it because they were worried about if it's if it's wet the the super soft would be a little bit easier to get to get working etc so i suspect it was probably like everyone else yeah but it was a needless gamble it was a needless gamble to take because there's there was every chance that uh, while everyone else was out there finishing their first lap on super softs and getting a banker lap in the heavens would have opened and they would have been back out there on on softs on an outlap so obviously the point is you had a you had an impatient sebastian vettel yeah so we had an impatient sebastian vettel not particularly happy with this wanting to crack on and basically disrespected the the weighing process which is rock up to the scales turn the car off get pushed onto the scales weighed pushed off crack on do your own thing and i say so he sort of frustratedly drove into the cone that was blocking his path and then what really really wound me up was when he lurched forward when there was still an official standing in front of him because first of all there's a lot of fo- like even a short bit of movement like that that the car carries a lot of force with it when it does that there's a lot going on on the front <laughs> front wing of a formula 1 car as well if that catches someone's leg I don't even want to think about the damage that could do well, we've, was, well we've had a ferrari at a pit stop causing a nasty injury this I, year in fact completely different circumstances I, I thought it was nothing to do with the driver but yeah i thought it was really really reckless and then to top it all off um he was then accused of destroying the scales by leaving by firing it up and driving off under his own own steam and it was just Vettel has this thing where he's he's so we talked about this I think earlier in the weekend he's so different out of the car to how he is in it yeah, I mean, in, in, the, the car, in the car he was arm waving he furiously. gets so <laughs> riled up he just emotions get we talk about drivers showing their emotions and this is the other thing that's ridiculously hypocritical is everyone says they want 
emotional drivers and then Vettel is an emotional driver in the car and they call him a petulant child always moaning and crying but he was stupid on Saturday he was reckless what he did he, he was basically had is that situation where he, his car basically was fairly close to being a weapon against that 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 official it wouldn't wasn't exactly like Sebastian was trying to hurt anyone but it just it was just a needless risk one of many over the course of the weekend apparently and he just, he's, yeah, you're right, he sat there arm-waving, started applauding at one point, didn't he? Because uh, they, they still weren't getting out of his way. And it was just, I was deeply, deeply unimpressed. Yet only a reprimand. Yeah, exactly the same punishment that Sergei Sorotkin and Kevin Magnussen, I think, got for driving too slowly on their in-laps in qualifying. Apparently that's apparently that's as bad as, as uh, risking running over an official. I never knew Scott felt so heatedly about these things. Actually, I do because we've shared the cab back on so many occasions. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was ridiculous. And a lot of people have put the point forward that Vettel shouldn't have been called in because it was a crucial moment. But the, you know, the, the whole point of that thing is that it's random. You don't leave it till the end of the session necessarily because uh, the if a team is cheating they can they can do stuff you know they they can it, remove it, the modification after they've had a run so it, it's a long established thing and the, the way which is generally taken seriously remember martin brundle in 91 was chucked out of the monaco grand prix before <laughs> before it started for missing the wave just missing the waybridge um which is quite draconian but it, you know it, sh- it should be taken seriously now i think um I mean, I'd, I'd, you don't like to see penalties for everything, but a lot of the things you do see grid penalties and things for. That one did seem to be a bit more. A bit yeah. More the the other hazard I think that Scott hasn't touched on is that when he took off and did his Weybridge uh, destroying, because he spun the rear tyres up, he actually fired the weighing apparatus out the back, and that could have hit someone and done them a serious injury. I'm on health and safety watch again, but it was it was just really stupid, and he wasn't really considering it? It was the consequences point, it, it was, of his actions. It was absolutely needless, and yeah, I can't blame him for being frustrated, but just contained the frustration. A third unacceptable hazard. Chelsea's Eden Hazard's return this weekend. Another another week that's ruined my fancy Premier League exploits at a Grand Prix. You're just frustrated that I've pulled yet more points. It ahead just of winds you. me up. I don't need that. When 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 you've got a Grand Prix on and you're trying to like that, you've got loads to focus on, you're just sort of thinking, right, okay, how's he getting on? How's he blanking at home to Everton? It's just that yeah, just a, the little little insight into the few things that rile me up during the Grand this, Prix. This sounds like a, an offshoot podcast. We'll have to uh, we'll have to create. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the uh, about the top runners, but looking a bit further back down, Charles Leclerc, one class B. Hero, I mean, he, yeah. Doing, After doing a mega, 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 mega lap in Q two on Saturday, I know he got done by teammate Marcus Ericsson in Q three, but uh, Leclerc. This is one one of the things that I really really love. One of these brilliant stories where he. Something happens on Saturday that I in isolation you go oh yeah very good lap that's that's quite good good for you oh you really like that you think that's your most surprising lap you've done all year got that excellent lovely little story in its own right and then fast forward twenty four hours and it's oh that laid the foundations of an absolutely stunning class B and, win, and it, best of the rest and of it us. was down to because basically everybody had given up on it because he he got uh, Leclerc got bumped just before the rain came by Magnussen so Magnussen got in and then they basically everyone everyone had given up and Leclerc said well let's let's try and just see what happens and, yeah, and the, the team wanted him to stop didn't yeah, they yeah, and well, Leclerc thought happened. he was better off in the garage as well but he thought might as well give it a go well he wasn't going to lose anything from being out he wasn't it, you know it was the same set of tyres so 
Yeah, nothing ventured, nothing gained, and in the end, something was gained. It, it was a brilliant lap, one of the best laps of the weekend with the conditions going on and what was at stake, and ultimately what it set up. He, he was flawless, got got the jump on Ericsson at the start, and then just controlled that class B fight, didn't he? Just sort of edged away and, and never yeah, looked it was, under it threat. Was a, it was brilliant. a very, very comfortable class B one. I mean, he was helped a bit by the fact Grosjean, who uh, would have been his kind of natural rival had a little bit of damage from early on. And of course, Ericsson, who'd started on Class B pole, as we should call it, um, he picked up some... Uh, in fact, I think he managed to... Somehow there was a little bit of floor damage they seemed to be patching up on the grid, apparently. Our colleague Adam Cooper spotted them doing that. But yeah, then I saw he, them then, working at the back of the car as well. And then and then Ericsson had uh, had the uh, the contact through the first corner with... Uh, it was it was Grosjean and Leclerc, wasn't he? He was on the... Yeah, he got squeezed, uh, really, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, it was, sort of it was three a sort into, of three into two. two don't go. Uh, exactly, it's a shame for Ericsson because it, it, his problem largely this year has been qualifying. He's been coming a bit more strongly in that regard, and you know, front of the midfield, he had a chance for a he started sixth. Yeah, it's very impressive yeah, with regard yeah. to his penalty. So uh, he, but, he can we can put that on his leaving card. But that seventh place for Leclerc, the points that's given Sauber. This is what's interesting for me. Not only has it put Sauber further clear of Toro Rosso, um, in their little fight for eighth, it's actually put them within striking distance of Force India. Or new Force India, racing yeah, for, point, for, racing Force India, who've team, been, Formula One Force India. Who've been sli- who've slightly oddly not been very good at picking up points recently. Which, yeah, exactly. So uh, Selber have actually gone from being right at the back of the grid with Williams at the start of the year to the last... So this is what I think Leclerc's second Class B win in five races. So that, so I think you can say on merit that that Sauber is now in the mix to be the fourth best car at certain circuits, which... And and if they still seventh in the championship, okay, they've taken advantage of Force India's point situation. But to be seventh in the mix for seventh and eighth in the championship, and and where they are Q three and regular top ten contenders now from where they started the year, that's a phenomenal rate of progress. Yeah, when when you look at the in car footage of his Q of that mega Q two lap, which thankfully you can now that Bernie Eccleston's been thrown the shown the door, and you can watch such things on the internet without burly men coming and banging and down your door it, it, he, he does have a really well balanced car underneath him yes it's a great lap he takes it by the scruff of the neck and it's brilliantly put together but he's clearly not driving a terrible car in it and again it just shows that Leclerc is going to is going to be a very very serious contender when he's at Ferrari next year I think nobody can have any any doubt about what he can do with that that Q2 lap was just a good example of that kind of cometh the hour type thing when a driver just through being very very good and being quite determined, just manages to to change things dramatically, and lay the foundation for that result. Well, we've we've talked a bit about how um, how emotional Vettel gets and how flustered he gets, and he can sort of work himself into a bit of a flap and maybe lose his cool. And if he's got Leclerc alongside him, not not Raikkonen, I think we'll um, we might actually see more of that rather than less of it next year. And it's going to be interesting to see how Vettel responds to that challenge. Yeah, it's uh, that's going to be a big challenge. He has to rise to absolutely has to, and uh, yeah, the, he's going to go into the season with something to prove, and I think that's going to add even more pressure. We we shouldn't underestimate Sebastian Vettel, though. Yes, he, he does seem to have fallen apart at times this year, but he's not a four times world champion for nothing, and uh, I think we have to, you know, we, we want as many drivers to be out there. Ideally, we want both drivers up there fighting for the championship. So hopefully he'll be uh, he'll be a bit stronger again again next season um there was also Stuart, some some general low level toro rosso driver irritation see they were battling on the periphery of the uh, 
of the points. And they finished uh, 11th and 13th in the end with Hartley 11th, Gasly 13th, separated by Sainz. But there was a bit of radio chatter. They weren't entirely happy about goings on. Yeah, there was a lot of radio chatter. That was quite an extraordinary scene and a bit of rancour, which is not a word you would uh, ask Nick Heidfeld to pronounce. And I think the root of it is that uh, Hartley got eliminated in Q1 uh, he, he locked up on his best lap, made a mistake. He admitted that. So he started on quite an outre race strategy. If he he started the he race the on, mediums. on mediums, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and so he he got a good start, and he was able to hold people behind him. So he got track position at the start. He then did a really really long opening stint, and that really put him in the pound seats towards the end of the race albeit not actually for a top 10 position. And this this is, is really the crux of the matter, that neither driver was really, really in contention for P10. They were quite a way behind. Well, at the finish, uh, Hartley was uh, 50 seconds behind. Yeah, exactly. Sergio Perez. So they, they were not going to catch Perez. So what happened was that towards the end of the race, courtesy of that um the, the strategy that Hartley was on and the fact that Gasly had spent quite a lot of the race, 25 laps, he said, really, really fighting to keep science behind him, taking a lot of energy out of his tyres, using all the engine modes and crucially using a lot of fuel in the process. That weakened uh, Gasly and, and Hartley was coming at him on newer tyres. Uh, and, and Hartley was saying, look, I've, I've now got science behind me because science had had to make an extra pit stop. Um, I need to get past. And so the team ordered Gasly to let him past. Uh, and Gasly told them to bod off in no uncertain terms. Uh, and his point of view is that if Hartley wants to come by, he should uh, overtake him on his own terms. He's on the fresher tyres. I'm struggling with, with, with fuel. I'm doing the best I can to get to the finish. And I'm a racing driver and the car ahead is miles in front. So I'm going to race him for this position and I'm going to race the car behind for position as well. I'm going to race to the end. So I can see why both drivers were were frustrated ultimately. It's one of those things that a lot of people don't like team orders, but you do kind of have to respect them. Yeah, Toro uh, I mean, Rosso lost control of that. They they said, and you could hear in that radio chatter, they said, change change positions at turn four. It didn't happen. You then heard Hartley complaining that it hadn't happened. You you heard the, the signal to go again, Hartley complaining again, them saying, well, we've asked him, we're going to ask again. You think, well, you know, you don't ask him. You tell him, do you think Patrick Head would have tolerated this sort of thing? What do you no. think he might have said? He'd have said, whatever it is that you do, do it better. I, th- I think the other thing from Gasly's perspective is, you know, one day it's it goes against you, the next day it's the other way around isn't it and I think they've only got one more race as teammates ultimately so chances are it doesn't really matter but you know you as teammates you do need to kind of cooperate with each other if you're gas you should probably just think actually it doesn't really matter if I let him pass I'm not giving away a point or not I mean, obviously he was giving away a chance for a point if one of the top 10 hit trouble but it's uh, sometimes I mean, you know you sometimes you have to know when to let it go yeah, and, and pay it forward it, there's been a bit of agitation generally at Toro Rosso recently with uh Hartley kicking off about some things and Gasly sort of saying, well, he says a lot of things. There's all this stuff about Hartley suggesting that Gasly's floor wasn't damaged in Austin because Hartley had a strong race there and I think he felt he wasn't being given a, a fair crack of the whip for his performances. So, uh, yeah, that one's just uh, a bit of general end of season uh, breaking downness, yeah. I think. And, and some and some great fruity radio messaging, which, of course, the Formula One TV directors love because it 
injects a note of spice into the final portion of a race when the lead battle's kind of maybe settled. But this goes back to what we were saying about we want to see drivers showing emotion. And if you can hear that, you can always convey more emotion in your voice. I know I do a very good job of not conveying any emotion when I speak on this podcast, but you can always do a better job of conveying emotion in your voice than than necessarily your actions, especially if you're a Formula One driver when you're cocooned in your cockpit and you you know you don't you don't get to see their face, you don't get to see sort of like a, like big reactions. So when you hear them like this in the heat of battle, it's it's awesome. And I, I I'm probably I hadn't honestly given it a great deal of thought. I'm probably on the side of I kind of get why Gasly held firm, but ultimately it's a team order. You should respect it. Um, I think it's quite entertaining when they uh, when they start to lose their temper like that because each of them feel that they have a reason to do it. And when you hear it from Hartley's perspective, you can really empathise with him. You're just like, no, I get it, man. Like you're really close. You. Your team's telling you to do it. Like I, I sympathise with you. And you're like, okay. All of a sudden, you care about this eleventh, twelfth place battle, don't you? Because you're suddenly checking the timing screens and waiting to see if it comes up on television. It makes you interested in the part of the race that you are otherwise wouldn't have given a second thought to. Yeah, I mean that that stuff is gold, particularly in that phase of the race when other elements are kind of fixed, and it just reintroduces people to the idea that, that there's battles going on all the way down the field. It's always fun with his teammates as well. Of course, we did have sort of lost over in the end wasn't it because there wasn't weren't any consequences really to it but we had science and hulkenberg on the on the first lap and science sort of doing a bit of a cheeky chop in in hulkenberg's direction going into junkau initially it looked like that had done some damage because hulkenberg then plummeted down the timing screens that was just a transponder glitch and he he was still there that gave run over a few uh, few, a brief brief moment of nervousness those it gave us a scary moment as well because we were sort of trying to work out what had happened to it but but again yeah we saw two teammates having they had a really good battle and then it just got a little bit over the top with science sort of shoving himself into into hulkenberg yeah it was in terms of battles it it was almost like um arnu and villeneuve wasn't it dijon it was it was really good and there was there was a point where it was like um I'm, i'm gonna ignore that i'm gonna there was a point where i was watching it and just thinking oh if anything he's given him too much room there and then they sweep through turn 11 the fast left and, <laughs> and then it's it was like, just oh, after no, you said over. that yeah oh he's no he's moved. Oh, each other. i love it when scott nudges me and does a bit of punditry that instantly turns out to be wrong usually happens once a race it happens for about 50 minutes straight on these podcasts well, that's what it's all about. It's only uh, only opinion, isn't it? But uh, yeah, it was another race where there was plenty going on. I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? The championship, the drivers' championship, was won. But yes, uh, still an exciting race, and we should briefly just take a moment to reflect on what Mercedes has done: five consecutive championship doubles. That matches what Ferrari's done. Technically speaking, Ferrari's record from 2000 to 2004, everyone says, which is five consecutive doubles. They did also tack the 99 constructors onto the front of that and of course probably would have won the drivers that year had Schumacher not broken his leg but even so this is incredible success for Mercedes and also against a a resurgent Ferrari for all the criticism we can level at Ferrari and Vettel the last couple of years they've become real real contenders this was a this was the best this was the best triumph wasn't it of, of, of the five um really really difficult drivers titles to win really difficult constructors titles to win both Ferraris in the mix we've had Kimi uh, involved for the first time really in his second spell at Ferrari so it it's been a it's been a really really good fight and and I'm amazed that Mercedes has been able to 
to dig deep the way way it has come back, especially at the point earlier this year when Ferrari sort of had momentum and it looked like, oh, actually the pendulum swung. It's it's now going towards Ferrari. And does Mercedes have what it takes? Has Mercedes had it too good for too long? Do they know how to win a tight fight like this? And I think all credit to them because I think they've had every kind of success now um, in in in, their, in this five five straight title double run. And that's just incredible. I, mean, I joked earlier that it feels like it's been about a decade. I don't remember when Mercedes wasn't dominating F1, but absolutely all credit to them because the the prospect of them eclipsing what Ferrari achieved at the start of the millennium, which I thought, I, because I, that's, that's the year of F1 I grew up to, and I remember looking and thinking, this must just be like a complete one-off and Ferrari are going to rule forever. And now you're on the brink of another team potentially eclipsing that next season but let's let them enjoy this before we start thinking about what records they can set next year i imagine they're probably already thinking about what they're going to try and do next year certainly lewis hamilton's very keen to chivy them on to be adding innovations to the car before the end of the season he spoke in the press conference today about uh, his debriefs being particularly long because he's always putting pressure on the team to excel so I i just think they gel together really well as a unit because he just is so determined and motivated. And in the same way that Michael Schumacher used to galvanise Ferrari through his sort of force of will and his ability to sort of act as the general, you you do see Lewis being that sort of chivying figure that that really gets the best out of that team. I think it's it's just that virtuous circle, isn't it? The driver gets the best out of the team, the team gets the best out of the driver, and and it just keeps keeps going like that. And that's why they've been able to respond to this, uh, this challenge. Well, as it is now about half midnight and we still do have some uh, some writing to be done, we should probably leave it there. So thanks to my guests, Scott Mitchell and to Stuart Codling. Uh, apologies for my uh, the fact my voice seems to be uh, gradually fading at, uh, at this late hour. Are you managing a power unit issue in your vocal cords? I seem to be, yes. Yeah, I've, I've consumed a lot of water during this podcast, but it doesn't seem to have, have really helped. Fortunately, I can, I can be quiet now. Well... Probably not throughout the night, because if you've been guzzling water, bearing in mind that I'm in the room directly below you, am I going to be awoken by you flushing the toilet every hour? Almost certainly, almost certainly. And uh, yeah, still got a few more hours before we'll be able to be able to turn in. But uh, well, thanks for listening. And uh, if you head to autosport.com, there's all sorts of news and reaction from the Brazilian Grand Prix. And there'll be plenty more uh, feeding through over the next uh, over the next few days. Check out our Plus subscriber area, where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists on F1, rallying, IndyCar, the lot. Please check out sister titles, F1 Racing, out monthly, and motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, check out Pit Stop Betting. Download the app. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.